Welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast with Weekly Standard founder and editor-at-large, Bill Crystal. I'm Eric Felton. Before I ask Bill about the week in Washington, let me mention that the Crystal Clear Podcast is brought to you by the Dollar Shave Club. Stop spending a fortune on gimmicky shave technology you don't need. Make the smarter choice by joining the Dollar Shave Club. Crystal Clear listeners can get their first month for just $5 with free shipping. Just go to dollarshaveclub.com slash weeklystandard. Bill Crystal, welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast. Thank you, Eric. Good to be here again. Good to have you. And um, it's been, in some ways, a very eventful week in Washington. But then here toward the end, it's been uncharacteristically quiet. Well, I'm sure that'll change in hours. As soon as we get off the air, something will break. But, I mean, it's pretty – one takes for granted now that news happens at warp speed. But just a week ago, Anthony Scaramucci was riding high as the new White House communications director. And then, of course, that interview with Ryan Lizza came out, foul-mouthed and talking about sticking the FBI on uh, his colleagues. And, of course, going after Ryan Priebus, the White House chief of staff. Friday, Reince Priebus, the White House chief of staff, is fired. Uh, late in the afternoon Friday, General Kelly replaces him. That's usually big news. You know, they're only White House chiefs of staff usually last a couple of years. He lasted six months. That would take that would be a weekend's and week's worth of news. Meanwhile, of course, the health care bill has gone down very early Friday morning in the Senate. Great drama with John McCain. Then on Monday, uh, General Kelly takes over as chief of staff and fires Scaramucci, who's 11 days as White House communications director. has got to be close to a record. A record of some sort. A lot of press, like, got a lot of media during those 11 days. Meanwhile, we have you know news about Trump's uh, personally writing the press release for his uh, on behalf of Trump, Donald Trump Jr. for the meeting with the Russians in Trump Tower. We have transcripts being leaked of conversations with foreign leaders in the Washington Post. Uh, Senate and House, uh, Trump reluctantly signs a, a bill passed by the Senate and House uh, to impose sanctions on Russia and on others while criticizing the bill. Thursday morning, he, he sends out a tweet uh, criticizing the Congress rather than Russia for creating bad relations with Russia. So, you know, in normal in the normal world, that's about two months worth of news. In Trump, in Trump world, that's five, six days. Except even given this, even with everything that's happened, the last couple of days have seemed almost serene by contrast with the chaos that things had devolved into. That's true. I mean, but on the other hand, even in the last couple of days, H.R. McMaster fired a couple of people at the NRA, at, at the National Security Council, raises questions about whether uh, Kelly is helping him establish control. So all there's the internal White House stories, there's the GOP and chaos stories, what's going to happen when they come back in September with the debt limit and keeping the government open. Is there going to be a small kind of health care bill passed, maybe on a bipartisan basis, to fix some things without going, obviously, the big repeal in a place isn't going to happen. Um, so the number of balls in the air at this time, even if there's a day or two of relative quiet, as you say, mixed in with the days or two of total madness, the number of uncertainties, balls in the air is really astonishing. The new Quinnipiac poll came out yesterday, occasioned much discussion. Uh, Donald Trump down to 33%. That's a little lower than in most polls, but it is the lowest he's been in that poll. So comparing apples to apples, that's a new low. Uh, 33% approval. Rasmussen. Even Rasmussen had him at 39. So, I mean, he actually does look like he took a hit. I was looking at about three or four different polls. And the best way to compare these polls is usually the same poll over time. They presumably haven't changed their methods. So you get a little bit of, at least directionally, of a, of a sense. Pretty much a drop in every poll over the last two, three weeks. It does seem like the combination of health care, 
failing or maybe healthcare being debated and defended badly by the Republicans and by the administration and then failing, combined with the Russia story, uh, stories maybe, combined with the chaos in the White House in the sense of just that no one's in charge. Those things together uh, seem to have contributed to some erosion in Trump's support. Still, his base is with him. They'll stay with him an awful long time. But I noticed in, in the Quinnipiac poll, his support among Republicans is more like 76%, I think, it was up at 82, 84, 85% before. So there are plenty of reluctant Trump supporters who um, may become more reluctant Trump supporters and eventually not so much Trump supporters. At, at this point, the support that Donald Trump has is probably almost exclusively Republican support. There's, there's no support he's getting from any Dem- Democrats. So if he, there's erosion, that's erosion from Republicans. Right. Some independents, where he still has some support. He had some crossover Democratic support, those Trump voters in the Midwest, some of whom might have even voted for Obama or Sanders. But that was always a pretty small number. Um, Trump's chosen to govern in a very partisan way. I don't know that that was really his instinct. He, I mean, he's combative. I mean, he didn't have been so partisan. And if I were he... I wouldn't have liked it as a conservative, but there's plenty of things he could have done on infrastructure and taxes uh, to reach out to Democrats. Steve Bannon actually had that notion on some of these issues. Uh, in a way, he's got the worst of both worlds. He, he's gone, he's governed, he's tried to ram things through as, on a purely party line basis. Uh, so in a way, he's tried to govern as an orthodox Republican, but of course, he's not really an orthodox Republican. So some of the normal Republicans are put off by him for other reasons. So he's not got much independent or Democratic support. And now his Republican support is beginning to erode a little bit. Can we at least predict that John Kelly will last longer as chief of staff than Anthony Scaramucci lasted as communication director? Yeah, 11 days is a low bar. I thought you were going to say uh, longer than Ryan's Priebus, and that I don't know, because I, one of the interesting things for me, and it really is just a I know John Kelly. I have a very, very high opinion of him, but he's so different from Trump. And how does that work out? Maybe it works out well. Maybe Trump changes his colors a little bit. Uh, the leopard does change his spots. Kelly gets control. Trump still does a few things people like me think are unpresidential, but basically we get a semi-normal White House. Uh, or maybe ultimately Trump won't accept that. He and Kelly clash. And you could imagine Kelly at some point saying, I'm sorry, sir, I won't do that. I was thinking of uh, on firing Sessions or firing Mueller. Uh, Sessions, the Attorney General, Mueller, obviously the special counsel. That's the kind of thing I imagine Kelly might refuse to do. Now, it was interesting that shortly after Kelly took over, uh, the word was put out that Sessions was safe, that he wasn't going to be fired by Trump. I imagine that's something Kelly discussed with Trump ahead of time, and along with getting rid of Scaramucci, that he was not going to become chief of staff in order to help fire Jeff Sessions as AG, or I suspect in order to fire Robert Mueller as special counsel. So maybe Trump has backed off some and things will change under Kelly, but one could also imagine that coming to a head at any time. On this question of whether the leopard can change his spots, we'll pivot to another story here. It seems that Donald Trump does not know how to walk away from a PR disaster of his own making. He just seems to double down every time. The most recent case is his speech before the Boy Scouts, which was inappropriately partisan not well received at all. Instead of walking away from that, just letting that have been a public relations disaster in its own right, and but one that was limited to the Boy Scout Jamboree, then he had to double down by claiming the top leaders of the Boy Scouts reached out to him to tell him that it was the greatest speech ever delivered before the group. You know, I don't know if he's doubling down or he just has doesn't have a very good uh, regulator in terms of telling the truth. And when it seems convenient, as it did in this Wall Street Journal interview. He just makes something up. I mean, you really wonder if he fully understands he's even 
making it up at, at some point, right? So uh, it is, of course, then, of course, it turns out no one called him, and he also manufactured a phone call conversation, I guess, with the president of Mexico. So, um, you know, he says a lot. He's gotten away over the years, and certainly in the campaign, with saying a lot of things that were just manifestly false. I mean, stories about himself, his past, claims about crowds, you know, the inauguration crowd. I think he doesn't understand that as president, people are going to take him, hold him to a little higher standard. Uh, again, does it end his Obviously, it doesn't end his presidency if he makes up a phone call from a Boy Scout leader. But it's just I think that is one reason I think his numbers are beginning to go down. Just normal voters who sympathize with him on a lot of issues, don't like the liberal media. But, I mean, really, he's behaving, uh, I think I said this in a tweet, it's not even like a teenager who's irresponsible and tries to, you know, get around his parents and makes up stories for a purpose. It's, it's more like, a, you know, an eight-year-old who makes up things randomly when they're when he's obviously going to be caught out, right? Steve Hayes compared it to the kid with uh, you know chocolate all over his face <laughs> who says, "I didn't eat the chocolate bar from the you know from the from the freezer." I mean, it's not even a clever lie; it's just a ridiculous one. Not calculated. It seems like he almost just he doesn't again have that kind of regulator that I think for most of us, not that we're all perfectly truthful all the time, but that tells us, "Gee, that's really an unnecessary, pointless, and discoverable lie." And one other story that's that's broken this week is the leak of transcripts of Donald Trump's conversations with the leaders of Mexico and Australia uh, back right after the inauguration. Um, some of this had been leaked before, but not the full transcript. Before we talk about what's in that, though, it is an astonishing level of leaking to have this kind of information um, being put out. It's kind of amazing. I mean, assuming they're done the way I, they were when I was in government, it's not quite a transcript in the sense that the calls probably aren't taped and then, you know, literally transcribed the way one transcribes a presidential speech. Um, they could be. But in our day, at least, someone listens in, and that's understood to be the case. It's not secret. Both leaders would have aides listening in on extensions and would take notes in sort of real time. I don't know if this is a transcript. I haven't looked closely. Or whether it's a, a notes. In either case, that becomes a memorandum of the, of the conversation, a memcon, uh, and is distributed in a, to a very small circle in the government. So I was I was in the office when Vice President Quayle, when I was the chief of staff, would talk with a foreign leader. We I would sometimes be on the phone. Usually I'd I'd defer and have, you know, a assistant secretary of state or our national security advisor, someone who knew more about the substance on the phone to sort of listen in, take notes. But then there'd be someone uh, more of a, a career staffer who was just good at t- doing taking notes quickly and who would do the MemCon. And you need to have that. Why? Because let's say the secretary of state, let's say the vice president would make a courtesy call to the president of some country, Bolivia, I'm making this up, but, you know, because we were doing some, had business with them, we were negotiating things, um, we had met with them a few months before, it was his birthday or something. But you, you makes the call, then they discuss various issues. You want the secretary of state, the secretary of defense, the you know, director of CIA, the president himself, national security advisor to the president, to know what was discussed on this call. Maybe we made a breakthrough in some negotiation. Maybe the vice president um, laid out a path which, you know, the Secretary of State wants to follow up on, or maybe at the staff level people want to follow up on that. Nothing fancy. This is just routine diplomacy, just to make sure parts of the government are coordinated. Same with a presidential call. Obviously, not everyone is sitting in the Oval Office at that moment. So the Secretary of State, who's a couple of miles away in Foggy Bottom, uh, needs to know what the president discussed with the uh, president of Mexico. So that's why these things exist. It's why they're circulated in the government, but it's why they're circulated in a very limited 
usually, at least in my experience, to a very limited number of people because it's sensitive, obviously. This is a phone call between private conversation. Foreign leaders have to have some assurance that their private conversations will be private. They know other people are listening. They know it's not really like, you know, two of us talking, uh, you know, from our living rooms on, on the phone. They, they know it's a, an official call and all that. But still, they don't expect it to be in the front page of the Washington Post. And it's a pretty extraordinary thing to leak the actual transcript or the actual uh, note taker's memcon, memorandum of conversation, uh, of the conversation. And it's, it's, it's bad. I mean, it's going to make it harder for just routine business to be accomplished uh, by the U.S. government. And there are real costs. Uh, I think we talked about this on, on the Crystal Clear podcast a little while ago when there was the G8 summit. And... President Trump met with President Putin with almost no staff at all, just with uh, uh, they each had a translator. We speculated at the the time that Trump may have been in part uh, limiting the number of people involved because he doesn't trust his aides not to be leaking things to the Washington Post. Yeah, I think Tillerson might have been in that meeting too with Putin, but but there was no real note taker of the kind there normally would be, more of a staffer type. These were both conversations in the first week. Obviously, there would have been holdovers, presumably doing some of these jobs or career people. Some of them might not be there anymore. Some of them might have kept copies of this and have and have leaked it now for whatever reason, I suppose, to embarrass President Trump. There doesn't seem to be, I haven't read them very carefully, there doesn't seem to be much of a substantive issue. It's more just showing that Donald Trump cares about his domestic po- political image and isn't always as sensitive to the nuances of foreign policy as one might might think an American president would be. But it was as he'd been in office one week. I mean, the degree to which he wants to preserve the myth that Mexico will pay for the wall and wants the Mexican president to cooperate with that uh, is a little striking. And the degree to which Trump, Trump, yeah, and the degree to which Trump doesn't really, you know, believe it or doesn't expect it is uh, no big surprise to me. But I think for some who really took him literally, they, they probably might be disappointed by that. You know, it's kind of interesting about it, though, is just on that kind of front, he's talking a lot about his own political calculations and making that very public and then kind of ignoring the domestic political calculations of the person he's talking to, whereas a smart negotiator, I would think generally the strategy would be to kind of keep your own motivations uh, close to the vest and then spend a lot of time and effort trying to figure out how to hit the buttons of the person you're talking with and and what they need. Yeah, I think that's right. I also think, again, this is based on my time in government, which was quite a while ago and in a very different type of administration, the George H.W. Bush administration. I mean, one wouldn't have freelanced in that way about anything unless maybe you'd been in office three years and you were talking to the leader of a very friendly power that you knew well personally. You know, even then, I think you'd be careful on the phone. Maybe in person, you'd have a kind of honest conversation about what's going on politically, you know. But I mean, these are foreign leaders. You don't know them. Trump had run against, you know, had run a pretty tough campaign on Mexico, obviously, in 2016. I mean, normally what you would do, and and normally it's a good reason to do it this way, is to be very cautious, to read talking points, to be courteous and polite, to lay a couple of things out there. This was a kind of get acquainted call. It was his first week as president. Say, Mr. President, I hope we can make progress on A, B, or C. Secretary of State Tillerson, I think, will be in touch with your foreign minister about A. I hope on the trade issue, Secretary of Commerce Ross can deal with you and we can make some work on, do some work on this. We, of course, have a common interest, blah, blah. You know, it sounds like just diplomatic pablum, and it is in some ways, but it's also 
kind of appropriate to the there's beginning. There's a reason there's Yes, there's a reason, travel. right. And to simply sort of jump ahead, I mean, the president of Mexico and especially the president of the prime minister of Australia, who I don't think had ever met Trump, you know, suddenly sort of being told that this deal that President Obama had signed was, he was, Trump hated it. He didn't want to go through with it. So I think to say, I'd like to have my, you know, ambassador or assistant secretary of state discuss this with your, with his counterpart and your government to see if we can make some modifications. But that's really not Trump's style. But I don't know that it's a very good style, Trump's style, for making progress with our allies like Australia or, um, you know, on sensitive issues with a neighbor like Mexico. Now, we're having here a conversation with Bill Crystal. But um, there is a show called Conversations with Bill Crystal that can be seen online at conversationswithbillcrystal.org. And uh, Bill, you have a new show up. Who's, who are you interviewing on the new Yeah, program? they also can be listened to as podcasts, and you can see how to do all that on the website. Um, the, uh, the most recent conversation we've posted, we do them every two weeks. And they're an hour, hour and a half, long form attempts to really provide some deep, in-depth analysis of an issue or of someone's career or uh, book, work, books sometimes, uh, particular works uh, of philosophy. And this was a conversation with Erwin Stelzer, whom readers of The Weekly Standard are very familiar with. He's been writing for us since our beginning on economics, political economy, broadly construed. I think it's a very interesting conversation. Erwin is not your typical economist. He's a very good economist, but he's a political economist. He thinks a lot about the political economy side of economics. It's not just bottom line, sort of dollars and cents, markets, you know, working at utmost efficiency. He thinks about democratic capitalism. How do you retain support for it? What makes for a healthy society to support free markets and so forth? So I found it an interesting discussion. I just tossed him questions, really, and he does 90% of the talking, as he should. And I think a lot of our uh, listeners and readers who are interested in these broad questions of political economy will find uh, listening to Erwin Stelzer for an hour and 20 minutes uh, very worthwhile. One of the things that I found to be particularly refreshing in that conversation was uh, Erwin Stelzer's uh, comments about um, environmental apocalyptic thinking and that the environmentalists not only think they're right, but they know they're right. And he disagrees with them, but he knows he may be wrong and takes from that that you think, then, if I'm wrong— what are the best policies, the least disruptive, the least costly policies to deal with the problem, but always keeping in mind that all the things you think you know could be wrong. Right, the kind of utility of humility, not, uh, but not letting humility, par- intellectual humility paralyze you either. Yeah, I think he's very good on that and really sort of being grown up and serious about, okay, we're going to make policy in this area. How do we do it in a way that takes account of some of the risks, minimizes the cost today, fosters economic growth, but also cares about other goods. So, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, well worth listening to. And again, that's conversations with BillCrystal.org. Bill Crystal, thanks for having this conversation today. My pleasure, Eric, and hopefully we'll have a nice quiet week this next week. And Quiet. Why do I not expect that to happen? <laughs> <laughs> Support for the Crystal Clear podcast comes from the Dollar Shave Club, The Smarter Choice. You get a great shave at a great price, conveniently delivered right to your door. It's a no-brainer. You don't have to schlep to the store and try to get the razors out of those plastic safes they're always locked behind. No cheap disposable razors that give you a cheap shave. And you don't spend a fortune on 14-blade razors with magic lubrication strips or other gimmicky shave technology. 
It's just a great razor paired with Dr. Carver's shave butter for a smooth, gentle shave. Listeners of the Crystal Clear podcast can make the smarter choice by joining Dollar Shave Club. New members get their first month of the executive razor with a tube of Dr. Carver's shave butter for only $5 with free shipping. After that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only 5 bucks. In your first month box, you get a weighty handle, a cassette of four razor cartridges, and a tube of shave butter. After your first month, replacement cartridges ship automatically at their regular price. There are no hidden fees and no commitments. Cancel any time you like. For this exclusive offer, go to dollarshaveclub.com slash weeklystandard. That's it for the Crystal Clear Podcast. Be sure to tune in every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription, or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. I'm Eric Felton. Thanks so much for listening.